Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. Except we're not doing that this week. But I'm still Ian Mills. I'm Laura Robinson. And we are both PhD candidates at Duke University. This week, in observation of the coronavirus quarantine, the social distancing, we thought we'd do a sort of special episode where we asked you, dear listeners, to call in and talk to us about your favorite works of New Testament scholarship, or at least whatever you're reading right now. Ian and I are not in the studio today. We are in our respective homes. This was the week I figured out how to actually do phone call episodes with decent audio quality. So This is a really exciting development, especially if we're trapped in our houses for the next 18 months. <laughs> so we have today a little over a half dozen calls in from our listeners. So without further ado, let's go to some of the calls. My name is Paul Sloan, and I teach at Houston Baptist University. I, um, I'm the chair of theology right now. Just finished my PhD at St. Andrews. And, let's see, it was about four years ago. Uh, I was working on Mark 13, just doing some intertextuality in, in, in the Olivet Discourse. And uh, now I, I work on Paul, and because of um, Offit's influence on me, actually, I've, I've been doing a, lot, a good bit of work on uh, atonement and the Mosaic Law with respect to atonement uh, in both the Old Testament and uh, and how Paul retrieves some of that. Awesome. Thanks so much for calling, and you've already hinted at what your work is uh, that you've picked, but why don't you tell us what that is? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I um, w- One of the pieces that's just been so meaningful to my own uh, research and to that of a lot of folks is the work of uh, David Moffat. It's called uh, Atonement and the Logic of Resurrection in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, yeah, Moffat, uh, his, it's, a, it's a fascinating piece because it challenges something um, that is so so basic to our, our, our vocabulary and, and, and speech about the atonement, namely to collapse it mostly to Jesus' death. When we talk about atonement, we often just assume we're talking about, you know, what did Jesus' death accomplish. And um, some of his work just challenges that assumption, and, and, and he focuses on the discourse of Hebrews, um, and his, his basic point is that, A, we shouldn't collapse atonement down to the slaughter of the animal when you're like looking at the, the, the rituals in Leviticus. You shouldn't collapse atonement to the slaughter of the animal. It's like an eight or nine or ten step process, um, the, the climax of which is the manipulation of blood on the altar. And then kind of taking that paradigm and looking at Hebrews, he says the same thing, we, we oughtn't collapse atonement onto the death or uh, crucifixion of Jesus, but that instead Jesus' resurrection and exaltation into the heavenly temple where he presents himself in the heavenly temple is the uh, means by which Jesus procures atonement. That's probably the most basic basic thing you could say about Moffat's work. Uh, it's a lot, a lot more detailed than that, but uh, yeah, that's probably the most basic thesis. Absolutely, and it should be noted, uh, David Moffat was a Duke PhD student. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and his work's been, I, I, he won some major award with it. It was his dissertation, won some major award with that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, that sounds right. Laura, my co-host, loves right. this book. I haven't actually gotten around to reading it, but I heard a version Man, of it uh, presented here at Duke at one point when he visited. What y'all rule like 20, 20 plus years? I think we, you got about seven yeah, or eight more years. We aim for 20 plus years so we can sort of evaluate the reception of the work. I got we, you. Yeah, you'll need thir- 13 more years then. We do make exceptions for certain things, but probably not for... Yeah, well, sure. We'll see. All right. Well, thank you so much for calling and really appreciate introducing us to that work. Yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. That was fun. Hi, my name's Krista Fourier. I live in Los Angeles and I'm a reporter. Thanks so much for calling in, Krista. What piece of New Testament scholarship do you want to talk about? 
So I personally am really interested uh, in dating texts. And one piece of scholarship that I have found interesting is James Crossley's The Date of Mark's Gospel, uh, which argues that uh, Mark was written around the late 30s or early 40s. He looks at both internal and external evidence to argue for the early date. So for external evidence, Crossley argues that the Mark 13 abomination of desolation was likely an addition by the author to reflect the Caligula crisis. And he even suggests that Mark's gospel may have been written as a response to Caligula. He cites uh, Garth Dyson and supports his argument that the late 30s would be an appropriate backdrop for rumors of wars and the desolating sacrilege. He focuses mostly on internal evidence, though. Crossley says that Jesus was actually fully observant of the law, which would suggest that Mark was written during a time when Christians were still largely observant of the law. And he does a couple case studies, including the Sabbath, uh, Jesus' treatment of the Sabbath, and then also his uh, teachings on uh, the prohibition of divorce. So for in the case of the divorce, Crossley argues that Jesus' prohibition uh, in Mark 10 is like, it likely precedes Paul's qualification for a divorce in 1 Corinthians, and therefore must have been written before the mid-50s. So then if we're left with a date before the mid-50s, then the most appropriate backdrop for Mark 13 would be during the time of Caligula, so that the gospel couldn't have been written later than the early 40s. Brilliant. Oh, I've God. never read this book, <laughs> but I've been told by several people that I need to. At least my working assumptions are a much later date. So we'll, I'll have to read this one at some point. Thank you so much for uh, introducing us to it. Awesome. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have Michael Dormandy. Hi, Michael. Hello, Ian. Hello, listeners. So, Michael, who are you? Uh, my name's uh, Michael, and I'm uh, currently I'm lecturer in New Testament uh, and also a program lead for independent students, which is students not funded by the Church of England, uh, at Ripon College, Cuddesdon, which is a uh, an Anglican theological college just outside Oxford, uh, set in beautiful Cotswold uh, English countryside, reflects a, a broad range of different uh, traditions within the Church of England, and um, yeah, has a whole range of students, uh, diverse in many ways, student body. Uh, and I'm also just coming to the tail end in the sort of final closing proofreading stages of a, of a PhD, looking at uh, the early Greek manuscripts of the whole Bible. Michael has a brilliant piece published in the Journal of Biblical Textual Criticism called How the Books Became the Bible that I commend to anyone who wants to read it. And we're going to get him back someday to talk to us, I think, about Larry Hurtado's book. Um, so that's not the book he's talking about today. Michael, what's your New Testament piece of scholarship of choice? Uh, I think, as it were, my Desert New Testament scholarship book is a book called uh, Paul in Fresh Perspectives by N.T. Wright, which is a tiny little book, which he, you could read it in, in a day sitting down. And if you're stuck at home because of coronavirus, that would not be a bad way to spend a day. Read that book through. Uh, it's a series of lectures that uh, Tom Wright gave in Cambridge some years ago. And he just sets out what he thinks about Paul's theology really clearly, really straightforwardly, in a, a very engaging, easy to read, gripping manner. And as I was reading it for the first time, I just began to see so many ways of just how Paul works began to click into place. I began to see how Paul makes sense of the Old Testament, because right, one of Wright's big ideas is that central to early or Second Temple Jewish thought is that we have one creator, God, who makes the world, and that he will be faithful to his promises to put that world right. 
that world is fallen and broken, uh, but God promised to Abraham, through Abraham's children, God would set that world back on track. Unfortunately, of course, Abraham's children also go off track. And the Pauline gospel is all about how Jesus has undone all the problems with Abraham's children and therefore allowed God to undo all the problems in the whole world. And this somehow um, made sense in my mind because it manages to connect the world as we see it with all its goodness, but also all its problems and brokenness. The Old Testament story is clearly very important to Paul and Paul himself in a way that made sense. I was like, wow, that is really amazing. And I, I commend that to all uh, people interested in the New Testament. Uh, I read that book for the first time when I was an undergrad, and I sometimes describe it as like the gateway drug for me to academic ways of approaching the New Testament. It has become popular, Michael and I, I think, are both aware, to make right the person you contrast yourself with. But I think this is a really helpful work to um, especially people outside of the academy uh, who are interested in what academic scholarship on the New Testament looks like. Absolutely, yes. No, I, I agree. And I, I, I think... Um... I don't agree with everything N.T. Wright says, but I would not count myself as someone who distances myself from him. Thanks so much, Michael. Great. No, thank you. Really fun to chat. Okay, so my name is Marty. I work in advertising, and I live in New York. What book did you want to talk about today? I want to talk about Albert Schweitzer's The Quest of the Historical Jesus, which um, Schweitzer published in 1906. And I think he wrote it the year between pre-med and medical school, <laughs> which means like, he was 30 years old, 29, 30 years old. So that yeah. makes him, I guess, a genius. Yeah, that's a, it's a brilliant book. Um, we've, Laura and I have talked a lot about covering this one, and we have plans to do so in the future. I love it. I mean, uh, basically, I mean, the topic is, is Jesus the man, the person, the historical person. And what the historians can know about him, given that the sources are so limited. I mean, basically, you know, we're relying on the gospel accounts, mm -hmm. which have to be reconciled, and very little else. I mean, very there's like a word or two in Paul, and so on, and very little outside the um, the New Testament. And what he does is he looks at all the existing lives of Jesus. That apparently there was a flourishing, you know, cottage industry of lives of Jesus in the late 19th century, and he tears them apart. I mean, he goes one by one. <laughs> it's it's like a thriller. Yeah. And it, it's it's really fun to read, book by book. You know, he's, he goes through each of them and he shows how they selected sources and basically filled in gaps. They didn't have any evidence. They filled. They made up made up conjectured certain things that would fit their thesis, and they ultimately um, end up painting a picture of the historical Jesus that that looks, as he said, a lot like them, mm -hmm. like a German intellectual of the late nineteenth century. <laughs> Which, which is fascinating, the, the idea that they could project themselves onto the historical character. Um, brilliant, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, Schweitzer is responsible for, I think it's fair to say, the reigning paradigm of the historical Jesus studies right now is Jesus as eschatological prophet. Um, and people trace that back to Schweitzer and one of his predecessors. Um, but I just think it's so, it's so uh, eloquently done. And his, yeah, his, his uh, apocalyptic prophet thesis, is, uh, it's, he presents it compellingly. You know, mm -hmm. I ended, ended up putting this book down, and not as an expert, but as a reader of this book. And I'm like, I'm convinced. I yep. believe it. So he won, he won me over. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for calling in. I really appreciate the phone call. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jeannie Selick, and I am currently a fifth-year PhD student in Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. 
My research centers around gender and sexuality um, in early Christianity, particularly in sort of conversations about the ascetic and monastic life. For a long time, I worked on female virginity, but my dissertation has actually taken a turn and is about male virginity. Specifically, um, I look at how Jerome treats uh, male chastity and virginity in his writings. Uh, so a bit later than the New Testament, but, you know, still relevant. Thanks so much for calling in, Jeannie. Um, you what, what work of New Testament scholarship, vaguely or broadly conceived, uh, do you want to talk about today? Yeah, so I would love to talk about Julie Caltolillis's Paradox in Partu, Verifying Virginity in the Protevangelium of James. I love this article. For anyone who hasn't read it, Julie's article um, centers around the kind of infamous scene of the gynecological exam of the Virgin Mary, Virgin again here in scare quotes, in the second century Protevangelium of James. Uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the Protevangelium, though I assume on this podcast most people love it. It's essentially just, you know, an origin story about the birth, childhood, and like pregnancy of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it includes the birth of the birth of Jesus. In the kind of scene in question that Lilith's article uh, revolves around, Mary has just given birth to Jesus when a midwife named Salome is like, yeah, a virgin? Yeah, right, she gave birth. I need to go check for myself. So this woman goes into the cave where Mary has just given birth and tries to perform a gynecological exam on Mary. And then kind of the second she tries to insert her finger, as the text says, um, Salome's hand withers and falls away. Of course, baby Jesus heals her, but yada, yada. It's like a very, very famous scene because it's so like raunchy and like, ooh, oh my God, like the Virgin Mary's vagina. So it's very popular. And Professor Lillis's article combats this idea that most scholars have had about this scene that what Salome is doing here is a virginity test, specifically that Salome is checking for a hymen. Uh, most scholars have thought that this is what was going on, basically through like our modern understanding of you know virginity as the presence of a hymen, and our understanding of sort of a virginity test as in fact looking for um, for that. Like I said, Lissa's article challenges this notion in kind of three different ways. Uh, first, she challenges the idea um, that there's a stable understanding in the ancient world of what the term virgin actually indicates. So it's not necessarily just the sexually un uninitiated, but it also has to do with like, you know, it can mean women who haven't had children, um, women of a certain age, things like that. Um, the second thing that her article does is it challenges the idea of a hymen as the all, you know, reaching telltale sign of virginity. In fact, um, she points out that if the Protevangelium is talking about a hymen, then it would be probably the first text in sort of Christian history that would indicate like a hymen as a sign of virginity. The last thing, and probably I think the most significant thing her article does is that she argues that Salome's test is not about Mary's sexual purity, but rather it conveys Mary's puer peril virginity, which essentially means like her childbirth virginity. So rather than this um, gynecological exam being used to show Mary didn't have sex ever, it's being used to emphasize like the miraculous nature of the birth of Jesus as a birth that's free from the typical pain, from the like impure substances that come with birth, 
from the vaginal dilation. So essentially, Mary's body remains totally intact, totally unchanged. And uh, her birth is really kind of, the birth of Jesus is exceptional in the way of that Mary's body is completely free from the signs of childbirth. So virginal in kind of every sense of the word. Julie Keltolilis did her dissertation at Duke University on the hymenal turn in fourth century Christian literature. And I don't know if this has been published yet. Has it? Do you know? I don't think it has. So something to look forward to, guys. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing it with us. Hi, my name is Joshua Haven, and I live in Dallas, Texas. I'm from Amarillo, Texas, and I have just finished my PhD program at Trinity College of Bristol through the University of Aberdeen, and I wrote a dissertation there on participation in Christ and Paul. And today I want to mention one of my most enjoyed books from recent Paul literature, and that is Susan Eastman's Paul and the Person, Reframing Paul's Anthropology. This is a very very unique book because it's very interdisciplinary, and it was published with Erdman's in 2017. And there was a really great review panel on it at the 2018 SBL. And Eastman does several unique things in this want to mention for why it stands out as a unique contribution. Um, After E.P. Sanders in 1977 in Paul and Palestinian Judaism indicated that participation in Christ is vitally important to Paul. We have an episode on that, by the way. Oh, great. Great. But Eastman has contributed a very unique contribution to the post-Sanders debates because her work engages with contemporary theory and neuroscience and personhood. And um, one of the things she mentions in the forward to the book is seeking contemporary expressions of Paul's um, thought. So John Barclay wrote the, the forward to the book that um, mentions how something Rudolf Bultmann sought was interpretation of Paul rather than bare paraphrasis. So instead of just parroting Paul's language in different words, we need some way to interpret it for today. In seeking contemporary expressions of Eastman's thought, she contrasts second person approaches to personhood from third person objectifying approaches to personhood. And she tries to illuminate Paul's thought in three specific ways on Paul's participatory logic. She's interested in human involvement in the realm of sin and death, Christ's participation in that realm of human bondage, and human involvement in a new interpersonal regime inaugurated and indwelt by Christ. All three aspects of Paul's logic involve profoundly constitutive interpersonal bonds between people, whether for good or for ill. All three occur in fully embodied and socially embedded existence that shapes our cognitive capacities as well. So kind of the takeaway here is that Eastman's vision of how Paul's participatory logic works is that we as people are relationally constituted. And so we have a a basis that's inextricably tied up with our environment. So she looks at contemporary research on how personhood in toxic environments can be deformative and how good interpersonal relations can be um, positively formative. And so she talks about how in Romans 7 in particular and in Galatians 2, this can help us with some of the hardest language in Paul's letters. She is one of few interpreters to note a parallel between the the phrases she has it is i no longer verb but subject plus verb in me so in galatians 2 20 that's no longer live but christ lives in me 
And in Romans 7, it's it's sin who's doing the indwelling. And um, there's this vision, at least in these two texts, and probably subtly elsewhere, where the, the self is involved in this matrix of participation. And she kind of draws here on J. Lewis Martin's work on the three-actor drama of the powers and this is obviously Eastman from her previous work has a lot of sympathies with apocalyptic reading. Right. Kind of the, the cash value of this um, for those who are interested in the book. Um, I think that one of the, the best paragraphs in the book is on towards the end on 178, 179. I'm going to read just a few sentences from it. Good. How does the notion of gifted identity transform ideas of what is necessary for the status of personhood? I've suggested that Paul's anthropology counters any criterialism about qualifications for being a person, precisely because it is grounded in the story of Christ's mimetic assimilation to the human condition. Paul's master story about what is most deeply true about human beings is not, in the first instance, the creation narrative, but the story of Jesus Christ. His being sent into the world in the likeness of the flesh of sin, his identification with sinful humanity to the point of death, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. This socially embedded divine action grants dignity and worth to every human being, that is, to every creature whose form Christ assumed. In this regard, it is not insignificant that Christ assumed the form of a slave, one whose legal standing as a person was liminal at best in the Roman Empire. Christ's assimilation to the most vulnerable form of human existence suggests that the status of personhood is not attained by any achievement, including participation in Christ. It is granted globally by Christ's participation in the depths of human life. For this reason, the incarnation affords a radical argument for the validity of every human body, irrespective of any criteria of rationality, mobility, race, gender, relationality, or any other characteristic. So for anyone who's interested in theological interpretation or ethics related to disability, etc., there's a lot of really uh, great resources in this book. But for people who are doing historical critical work on Paul also, her, her comparison between Paul and Epictetus and her critical and sympathetic reading of Paul in relation to the Stoics with Charles Ingberg Peterson is um, very insightful on this relational matrix, either of toxicity and sin unto death, resurrection and new creation unto life. So that's, those are some things I appreciate about this book. Um, and I can't resist pointing out that Susan Eastman is a Duke professor, and I've been hearing her talk about this book for years since I arrived, and I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, so shame on me. So thanks so much, Joshua. Really great to talk to you, and not in person, but uh, viva vox. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm Joe Scales. I write under Joseph Scales. I'm a third-year PhD candidate in theology and religion at the University of Birmingham in the UK. We don't really have more specific tracks than that here, or at least in my department, but generally I work in... Um, Second Temple Period Judaism, confining my research interests mostly to the kind of last couple centuries BCE. Um, my own research, which I'm in the midst of writing up, hopefully due to finish my PhD this summer, all other complications, um, virus related <laughs> and other permitting. But I'm working on second, late Second Temple period Galilee from an archaeological perspective, kind of interested in uh, what we can know about this region and its particular practices or the practices of the people who live there uh, as it's operating in this kind of periphery space between, we, we tend to think of 
Judea as maybe normative practices going on the Second Temple period. And then we might also have a conception of the diaspora. Um, well, Galilee kind of falls in between them. So it's somehow in the land, but it's also at a distance from the temple. Um, so I'm interested in how this kind of particular periphery space was mediated in material culture and any kind of hints we have in Second Temple Jewish literature. New Testament is kind of like a, a side to that for me. So I don't directly really work um, much of the New Testament kind of for methodological reasons and general suspicion but i try to keep posted with what's going on in the world of new testament um, my interest in second temple judaism spun out of an interest in uh, particularly the synoptic gospels so it's kind of the background to that the piece of new testament scholarship that i'd like to just introduce to listeners is actually uh, a book by one of my supervisors karen j wenell the title is Jesus and Land, uh, Sacred Space or Sacred and Social Space in Second Temple Judaism. This book came out of Karen's uh, PhD, which he completed in 2004 at the University of Glasgow, if I'm not misremembering that, and was published in 2007 by TNT Clark in the Library of New Testament Studies series. I found it very helpful for framing. Uh, particularly how spatial theory can really bring something to uh, the study of the New Testament. So spatial theory very briefly kind of comes out of radical geography in some ways and some philosophy, and it's really a turn to look at how spaces are created through human action uh, and thinking about space as a key dimension in which society plays out. So historically, the idea is that people like to think about temporal shifts, temporal ways of looking at how societies develop. This kind of refocuses or shifts attention away from developments in time to thinking about spaces and all this other kind of stuff. So Karen's work really engages with a lot of that methodology and theory around how space works. And you can really see it being applied to texts and ancient culture in this book. Mm -hmm. um, brief rundown of it. So she introduces um, spatial theory and kind of some methodological points on how we go about construct reconstructing the historical Jesus. Um, she examines centralized power of the temple. Um, so the Jerusalem temple, how this develops as a space, some thoughts on this as a a dominant ideological motif, I guess, in Second Temple Judaism. And then it the reaction to this kind of centralized temple authority in kind of other, if I put quote marks around imagined spaces, uh, <laughs> so things like the uh, Qumran community re-envisioning themselves as a temple community or the Samaritan temple at Mount Gerizim. So kind of how Jesus fits into this with language and ideology of the temple space in his own message about the kingdom of God. Uh, she then examines purity in ancient Judaism, uh, the role of purity in Jesus' message and also in living in the land in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, she examines the kind of idea of the 12 tribes of Israel, how this functions in the land and what Jesus is doing with his 12 disciples. Uh, and then finally, how the land kind of functions as a sacred and social space. The space varies for different people, different groups and also reflects a bit on how beliefs about what kind of space you live in might influence your actions in the world, and then how your actions in the world might influence how you 
kind of understand space. Great. Thank you so much for calling in and telling us about Wendell's work. Appreciate it. Thank you. Go and read it. She's also got some great articles. Uh, lots of Kingdom of God stuff and hey. all kinds of different theory. I love <laughs> Kingdom of God stuff. We'll have to do an episode on one of her Kingdom of God pieces for uh, the, the show. So, Laura, what piece of New Testament scholarship do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the book, The Ways It Often Parted. This was the feshrift that was presented to Joel Marcus on the occasion of his retirement last year. Uh, we had Joel Marcus's retirement lecture on this show. Joel was a legendary faculty member at Duke University and dear friend, my advisor. Not expired. Um, <laughs> but this book was edited by Lori Barron, Jill Hicks Keaton, and Matthew Thiessen. It's a great collection of essays on how Judaism and Christianity parted ways in the development of Judaism and Christianity as separate and interacting traditions. I just really enjoyed this collection. I think it's great. I highly recommend it to anyone who is sitting at home trying to figure out what to do with themselves for the next six weeks. Absolutely. And Laura just wrote a book review of this Feshrift, uh, which you can find on the Ancient Jew Review. So if you search for the ways that often parted AJR or Laura Robinson, you can go read her brief synopsis of several of the essays um, that are in this book. And I, I commend it to you. Thanks. Yeah. No. Yep. Hope you check this out. Thanks, Laura. Thanks.